Because we've been on hiatus for the letter, it's appropriate for me to remind you of kind of the circumstances that kind of give us the context for the passage tonight. And so Paul was a missionary, a Christian missionary, who went around the Roman Empire preaching Jesus and planting churches. The church in Corinth is one of the churches he planted, and he spent no small amount of time there, at least a year and a half in this city, which for Paul is a long amount of time. Sometimes he'd just spend a couple of weeks before moving on. Not only that, but out while he was in Corinth, um, there's, there's a happening that we don't find anywhere else. You see, it tells us in the book of Acts, in I believe chapter 18, that <clears throat> Paul was having such a rough time that it says that the Lord appeared to him and said, stay put, don't give up, continue on, because I have many people in this city. So it appears that Paul was having such a hard time in Corinth, the soil, if you will, was so unreceptive, that there was no church getting started to speak of, that he thought about just pulling up his pent tags and getting out of town. Tent pegs, there we go. Um, and getting out of town. <coughs> um, he didn't, and miraculous things happened. People became Christians. A church was formed. Now, he tells us in our passage tonight that he had, if you will, a strategy. He, he laid out intentions for how he was going to go about things. In fact, he made a determination, a decision to do things in a particular way and not in other ways. And what's interesting is even though he takes this tact, he now, years later, writing to the church in Corinth, needs to remind them of their origins. Okay? And so what that tells us is that he rightly read the circumstances, but they were even stronger than he realized. Okay? So here's, here's the basis of what was going on. Corinth was the new Athens. Please, Richard, bring it right on up. That sounds wonderful. Thank you. I had about half a sip of coffee before I came up, which was a serious mistake. You've got to go to the dregs or not at all. Corinth was the new Athens, okay? At this point in the first century, Athens is no longer the cultural and philosophical epicenter of Rome. It's kind of had its heyday. It's just kind of cricketsville. There's not much going on in Athens except looking backwards like we do in Athens now, okay? Corinth, however, had become one of the great cultural centers, okay? Um, and it was, it was a cultural center for a whole bunch of reasons, but it had become kind of a thing, to applaud and go and listen to philosophers and rhetoricians. Everyone there on every corner was an incredible speaker or they were booed out of town, basically. Imagine if Tony Robbins set up his own city and you get the city of Corinth, okay? Now, Paul comes into this, and if you've read his letters, he is a very articulate and thoughtful individual. I mean, have you read 1 Corinthians 13? There's a reason why it's still read at weddings today, okay? Because the way that it talks about love is beautiful. But when he got into Corinth, he didn't want to just be white noise with the culture. In fact, he recognized that the culture was so used to these things, the litmus test for gauging the value of communication, for gauging the truth of what was said, for gauging who would get a hearing and who wouldn't, was just going to be completely opposite of the message of the gospel. And so this is how he lays it out in chapter 1. He says, look, the message of the cross is foolishness to the Greeks and to the Jews. Right? That's how he says it. And he says, so if you come in going, well, this is what wisdom looks like, it's not going to be a good paradigm for truth. Okay? 
effectively, what Paul says about Corinth here is true of all cultures. We have blind spots, okay? And so when we take our paradigm, when we take our um, plausibility structure, whatever it is we determine what is and what isn't, it's not a gauge for things that aren't on our radar, okay? It's very good for answering some questions and very bad at others. Now let me add one other detail that may or may not be important. Right before (coughs) Paul gets to Corinth, he's in Athens. And in Athens, he speaks... Uh, he's, he's kind of overwhelmed by all of the presence of religion in Athens, that there's an altar on every corner to a different god. He tells us in, in Acts 17 that he even finds one dedicated to the unknown god, just in case they missed one. Okay? So he's overwhelmed in his spirit. He feels the need to preach about Jesus. He does so. In fact, he even breaks his normal approach, which is to be with people. He's alone in Athens, and instead of waiting for his co-workers, he can't resist, and he just starts to share Jesus. And a couple of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers say, we'd like to hear more of this, but we'd like to do it officially. Will you come to the Areopagus and speak, and we'll sit in the audience and we'll listen? And he does so. And once again, Paul portrays an incredible amount of eloquence. It's a very interesting sermon, in fact, because he doesn't quote from the Old Testament. He quotes from Greeks. He quotes from a Greek poet, and uh, a Greek historian, and he says, even your own people know these things to be true. But when he finally gets around to Jesus and he mentions the resurrection, they stop the show. They hit the three X's, right? Like on America's Got Talent or The Voice or whatever. Um, You know, they hit the gong and they say, you know what? We'll listen to you another time and that's it, okay? Now, that in and of itself doesn't mean very much, but here's why it's important. You can go through the book of Acts and look at all of the places that Paul drove into town and started preaching, and you always see the same two things. First off, tremendous hostility, okay? What Paul had to share and the way that he shared it was not welcome in most communities. He was driven out. He was stoned to death. He was threatened. There were mobs. This was a normal part in every city. But on the other hand, and almost paradoxically, People believed his message and received it. And so you see reception and hostility in almost every city. Just follow Paul's life through the book of Acts and you'll see that's the case. The only place where you don't find hostility, Athens. And it's also the only place where you don't find any reception. We don't hear of anyone responding positively to Paul's message. Now, this is not a denial of Paul's appropriate tact in Athens of speaking their language. But it does seem to shed light on the fact that when he pulls into Corinth and sees a similar but even more situation, that he decides to do things differently. Okay? That may be a part of what we're about to read. So with that being said, let's read the passage through just the first five verses in chapter 2, and then we'll pray. He says, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Let's pray. Father, I know that we have cultural blind spots tonight. And I know that not only are we all those who come to hear, 
what the preacher has to say, and so we gauge preaching. But we also are those who are called to speak, that you have called all Christians to be witnesses. And so answering the question, what is it that makes the gospel effective? What is it that is the essential ingredient? How is it that, uh, that the gospel is powerful is, is tremendously important to us. So I pray that you would reshape our paradigm tonight, even if you have to break it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Did you see his determination here? What we see in this passage is basically, I did not do and I did do's. Right? That's, that's all it is. He says, these things I did, these things I determined to do, these things I did, these things I would not do. Right? There's intention here. And it finishes with a purpose statement. He says, I did all these things so that, and then he tells us why. But <clears throat> what I want you to recognize tonight is that Paul recognized that Corinthians had a tendency to not hear the message of the gospel, not because it was unattractive, but because it was confrontational. Okay? What made them resisted to it, according to Paul, his assessment is not, not, well, we just need to make it more beautiful. We just need to make it more relevant. He actually said, no, that will hide, that will hinder, that will ruin, and that will eclipse the message. Instead, he chose to do things in a way that effectively was offensive to the culture. They go, we know truth because it's well-spoken and wise. And Paul says, well, then I will stutter and shake. That's what's going on in this passage. Okay. Now, the first thing I want you to notice is that he starts by telling us what he didn't do. Did you notice? He says, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. <clears throat> that word lofty in the Greek means exactly what it sounds like. It's high speech. Okay? What he's saying here is he didn't come with eloquence. He didn't come with well-crafted, perfectly parsed sentences Okay? He didn't come with years of stuttering, studying rhetoric and speech giving under his belt and choose just the right words so that you walked away going, man, that guy can speak. In fact, he says here, I, he didn't come with wisdom. Now, clarification is needed. Throughout this whole passage in chapters 1 and chapter 2, Paul draws a distinction between the foolishness of God and his gospel and the wisdom of the world. And I'll let you in on a little secret. He doesn't actually think that God is foolish. What he's trying to say is actually that their so-called wisdom is so short-sighted that they can't even see the wisdom of God, that they've written, written the truth right out of possibility, right? Do you see this? That's what he's saying. In fact, he clarifies in verse 6. We won't talk about this tonight, but it's worth reading. He says, yet <coughs> among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. And so he's not saying there's no wisdom in the gospel. In fact, he believes there's tremendous depth in the gospel. In fact, he's not even saying that we should be um, unclear. And this is really important, okay? Um, I don't know how many of you have, have been around the culture we call the church. But the last couple of decades have been fascinated with a couple of terms such as relevancy and contextualization. And a lot of times, when the question is asked, how can we make the church or the gospel relevant, the answers I hear are instruments and technology, right? It's about what instruments you play for worship and the style you bring to the table and if you use or rightly use technology, okay? First off, that's such a poor use of language. If that's what makes something relevant, 
I don't even know how to talk anymore, okay? Um, the, the, the goal of relevancy is not making something attractive, okay? The goal of contextualization is not making something like something so that they just naturally accept it because it's just like them. The goal is clarity, okay? The recognition is that God is inherently otherworldly. And even though the authors of Scripture are all enculturated, some Jews, some, some Greeks, some on the African continent, some on the European, some in Hebrew, some in Greek, some 2,000 years ago, some 3,000 years ago, right? All of those cultures you can see in the text. But for every one of those lowercase a authors in its context, the Bible also declares that there's an uppercase a author who speaks consistently. And he's not of any of those cultures. And sometimes God graciously condescends and says, let me put this in a way you will understand, first century agrarian Jews. The kingdom of God is like a farmer who went out to farm, right? We see these elements. And if you study Paul's sermons, you'll see that his urban preaching and his uh, agrarian preaching are very different. Here we talk about the Olympics. Here we talk about plants, Okay? And he adapts his message for his culture. But the goal is not relevancy in the sense of attractive or just like everything else so I can look like them. It's clarity. And the difference is massive. Okay? Because, let me just make an observation. If God wants to speak to your culture, and if all cultures are different, there are going to be some things that God's message embraces about your culture. In fact, church, this is something we need to recognize. There are things in our culture and in the cultures in other places that are representations of the fact that we were created in the image of God, that are still reflecting the fact that God has built us in a marvelous way, and we should recognize that and not just write off culture as if we can avoid culture somehow by staying in the pews, okay? All we get then is a different culture and usually an older culture, okay? And so we're last decades or last centuries culture, but we're still enculturated, that's the way we are. But if that's true, It should also be true that culturally, God's going to have things that he calls out, that he confronts, okay? If our man-made cultures are the product of men, and all of men are fallen, then there's going to be some good and some bad. Now, why am I harping on this, okay? Because there's this tendency to try and remove the confrontational from Christianity to make it somehow more accessible, And that's what Paul's danger is here. And he says, if I come with the eloquence and wisdom that your culture requires, you won't get the truth. He says, if I just talk about Jesus, the tremendous preacher and the one who spoke with power and authority, right? And I forget to mention the fact that he came and he died, right? That's foolishness. There's no paradigm for that, okay? So let me put it in one way that I found helpful, okay? Contextualization, when it's rightly done, is to avoid stumbling, right? We don't want people to trip up over our words, except in one place, the stumbling block, right? The Jesus Christ, who everybody is supposed to stumble over. And all we want to do in contextualizing or considering our culture is make sure there's no preemptive tripping up, okay? But it's about clarity, And so he says here, I didn't come in your assessment of wisdom. It's not that he didn't have wise things to say, but he didn't play their game of wisdom. He didn't quote their people. He didn't run, you know, the best-selling author's book signing tour circuit. He didn't play their game. 
He says, instead, he determined, verse 2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, what is Paul saying here? Is he saying that the only thing he'd talk about was Jesus, and if they brought up another topic, he'd go, I don't know anything about that? Probably not, right? In fact, if you just look at the rest of the letter of Corinthians, he reminds them of things that he's taught them, and they're broad in their category. He says, we've already talked about sexual ethics. We've already talked about how to treat one another. He does all these things, and yet here he toes the line and says, but when I came, all I talked about was Jesus. Okay? Here's what he's trying to make clear. Okay? That unlike the self-help culture of, first, or of, of Corinth, Okay? where everybody had an opinion on how to live best. And if they could state it eloquently, everybody would listen and tune in next time and all of these things. Instead, he said, I don't have any principles for you. Okay? Now, this is so much more contemporary and relevant than it feels. Because I have read books from well-meaning pastors that are basically just this. Good-meaning advice that we've added a veneer of Christianity or Jesus to. Right? They've made it acceptable, tolerable, just like everything else. This is what Paul's saying he didn't do. He says, I have only one message, and it's not policy. It's not principles. It's not politics. It's a person, and his name is Jesus. Okay? Every time Paul opened the Old Testament scriptures, every time he told them about the stories of the gospel, every time he reminded them of the things that Jesus said and did, ultimately he tied it directly to who Jesus is. Now, if you've been with us for the last few weeks and we looked at how Jesus talked about himself last week, that's probably not surprising. Jesus himself believed what the world needed most was himself, okay? Not his teachings, not his example, not his leadership, himself. And so Paul follows suit here and he says, what I have to give you, what I have to proclaim, what I want to talk about is a person, Jesus Christ. And not only that, notice he says Jesus Christ and him crucified. And why does he add that? For one reason that we've been talking about the last few weeks, you cannot understand the person of Jesus outside of that lens of the cross. You can't do it. If you can answer the question, who is Jesus, and not bring up the crucifixion, you don't know who Jesus is. If you just reduce him down to a good teacher, or a healer, or a prophet, or these things, and you don't get to the crucifixion, then you failed the litmus test of how Jesus said you would know who he is, which is when he would be raised up, as we saw a few weeks ago. But not only that, this is the part that's the least tolerable. This is the part that's the hardest to swallow. This is the part that's offensive to the Corinthian church. Because here's what it says. Not only is crucifixion in and of itself, even though we are so distant from it and have never witnessed it ourselves, that we've tended to take the pain and the terribleness out of it, right? I mean, crucifixion as an idea is a horrible thing. That, that we would nail a human being to a piece of wood and raise them in the air and let them hang there long enough that they suffocated, okay? It's a terrible death. That in and of itself is so offensive that Roman unspoken rule was you don't talk about crucifixion. You just don't. And Paul says, I determined to talk about it all the time. But not only that, but the message that that, that Paul is talking about here in the person of Jesus, when he brings up the crucifixion, it's a reminder that it shows, in fact, what's wrong with the whole wisdom and self help culture. 
basically he's saying, Jesus came to die because that's what you deserve. Jesus came to die because all of your self-help won't do it. Yeah, I'd give you principles, but they won't save you. Jesus came to save you, and it cost him his life, okay? And so he says, this was my focus. This was my intention. This was my center. And not only that, if you study not just Jesus' talking, but the rest of the apostles in the New Testament, this is the heart of This is the center. This is all we should be talking about. Listen, if you've come to this church for a while and you've listened to me preach, I wouldn't be surprised if you feel like I really only have one message. That there's a redundancy and a repetition to the things we talk about. If we get to the conclusion, I'm going to talk about Jesus. And we may be in the Old Testament, so I might not bring him up and tell the conclusion, and that's true. But I'm going to get there. Okay? Let me give you, well, the words of Spurgeon. He said, look, I will find the road to Jesus in any given text. And if I don't find the road, I will leap over hedges and fences to get there. Okay? Now, that may be poor biblical interpretation, but it's a good philosophy of ministry because that's all we have to say. That's all we have to talk about. And if you read the rest of Corinthians or Ephesians or Galatians or any other letter, they're going to talk about a lot of things. They're going to say, you can't live this way in your bedroom. They're going to say, this is how this affects the politics of the entire world. They're going to say, this is how you should treat your mother-in-law. All these things are going to be on the table, but every single time it's going to be rooted in who Jesus is. It's going to, you know, Paul himself, he says, hey, I know this is a, a sensitive issue, but let's talk about your wallet. He says, you should be generous. You should give generously. You know why, Paul says? He says, because he, Jesus, who was rich, became poor so that you being poor might become rich. Every single issue. How should we behave in our marriage? As pictured in Jesus Christ. Over and over and over again, okay? This is the focus of Christianity because this is the message. In fact, Paul has already alluded to this even if you hadn't caught it. How does he open this up? He says, when I came to you, brothers, I came to you proclaiming the testimony of God. You know what that says about Paul's career, his ministry, what he had to say? It wasn't his message, right? It's a testimony of what God has done, okay? And so this isn't about what Paul has to say at all. He's just the carrier. His job could be done by a well-trained courier pigeon. That's the way Paul sees his ministry here. I came proclaiming the testimony of God. In fact, that word proclaim there, There's many words that we could translate preaching or teaching that have to do with communication of the gospel in the New Testament. And they're very interesting. I'd encourage you, if you can dig through a concordance at all and find these things, to do a study on these words. Because some of them mean to do it conversationally, like you would over coffee. That is an appropriate way to talk about Jesus. Some of them mean to give a firm and solid argument of ideas for. Some of them mean to teach and explain But this word, this word means to herald, okay? We don't have heralds anymore. And sometimes I wish we did because it's so easy for messages to get skewed in communication, right? Like the president says something, but you read about it in a particularly one way or the other biased newspaper, and so you don't really hear what was said. You hear it with interpretation and undertone and added emotion and all of these things. But the herald's job, the herald's job was to take a message proclaimed by the king himself Stand out on the corner, grab everybody's attention, and read it word for word. Now, just to pre-guess where we're going, how do you judge a good herald versus a bad herald? Is it his eloquence and turn of speech? 
Is it his presence? No, it's his faithfulness. That's the only thing that matters. Did he convey the message he was given? And Paul says, the message I was given was Jesus Christ and him crucified. Okay? He proclaimed it, and he determined to know nothing else, to keep the focus there. Listen, the question tonight is, what makes for conversion? What makes for powerful communication? What makes for effective evangelism? What makes for good preaching? First answer, Jesus, okay? In fact, I'll add a second answer just because I'm thinking of it. Testimony of God, it's the word of God, okay? I'm not up here to give my opinions or my advice. The worst thing I can do is give you my advice. Every time I get up here, and this is true, I think before I step into this pulpit, the words of Paul who says, I know that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. I have very little good things to offer you but I know a good person to tell you about, okay? That's what the thing is here. That's what the focus is. That's what the importance is. It's the testimony of God. And so, so here's another thing that we're, we're going to do. Yes, I'm always going to get to Jesus, but I'm not going to do it from the episode of Oprah I watched yesterday. And I'm, I'm not going to do it, you know, with my Bible closed because this is the story. You want to know what my life goal is? It's also found in the ministry of Paul. He looks the Ephesian pastors in the eye and he says, I did not neglect to declare to you the entire counsel of God. What a goal. God's spoken. And Paul says, the only thing I want to do is to take enough time for you to hear all of it. So that's why we go through the Bible verse by verse and chapter by chapter. And sometimes I feel the need, because I know this church and where we're at, to supplement it with a series. But even there, you know what we're going to do? We're going to go verse by verse, okay? And when we go verse by verse, we're going to find on every page writ large the story of the person and work of Jesus Christ, okay? Because that's where the power is. That's what Paul knew to be true. But it doesn't stop there. I want you to notice what he says in verse 3, okay? Before I do... Ask yourself this question. How do I know an effective speaker? Okay, now read this in verse 3. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. You know what that sounds like? That sounds like an admission essay to a scholarship for Toastmasters. Doesn't it? Right? He says, weakness, fear, and I was literally shaking in my boots in front of you. That's what he says. What do you look for in a speaker? Is it strength? suave and confidence? Is it that he's convincing? Weakness and fear and much trembling. Now, me aside, I don't really tremble like I used to when I teached. I did when I started. Most of us have public, done public speaking and had that feeling, right? But there's another way that I want you to think about this. Stop asking for a second about the public speakers and just ask about telling people about Jesus. Now do you have a context for weakness and fear and much trembling? You don't have to look in, you know, the Wall Street Journal. You can just read your own journal, okay? Right? Because we've all had those occasions where we felt the burden of telling people about Jesus and so ill-equipped to do so. And we feel like our tongue has just swollen up three sizes and anything we ever learned that was a good case for Christianity has just left our brain for a vacation, and, and I personally, I'm sure some of you have experienced this, have, have been embarrassingly shaking as I'm just trying to do what should be a terribly normal thing. Observation. Paul determines to do some things here. 
He doesn't determine to tremble. How inauthentic would that be that? This is not some sort of stage presence that he puts on, you know, like he's some sort of method actor who puts on this persona. This is reality for Paul. And by the way, Corinthians isn't the only place that points to this. In 2 Corinthians, the enemies of Paul say, look, I know that guy writes good letters, but have you ever heard him talk? They ask this question. He, he, he was so unimpressive that church tradition, I don't know if this is true or not, but at least these are Christians reading the same Bible as us, believed that he was bow-legged, hook-nosed, bent over, that there was something, something about his face you'd never want to look at, and that he was nasally in his voice. Okay? That's, that's the reputation Paul has. The powerful Paul the Apostle, right? The Paul who planted dozens of churches all over the Roman Empire, who led thousands of people to Jesus, who was, you know... Um, probably the first and greatest missionary of Christianity. This Paul says, I was in fear and weakness and trembling. And he believes in the reality of the power of what he's doing so much that later in this same set of letters in 2 Corinthians, he says, look, you want me to boast? You want me to bring my credentials? You want me to show show you my resume on why I'm an apostle? He says, the only thing I'm going to boast in is my weakness. And he just talks about all of these horrible things that has happened to him and the things that he's struggling with. And he says, but the glory, the power is the fact that God's strength was perfected in my weakness. Therefore, I will boast in my weakness. Okay? So this is reality for Paul, and yet it didn't take away from his effectiveness. Paul was in fear and weakness and trembling, and people were getting saved, and churches were getting planted, and lives were getting changed, and the gospel was going forth, okay? You should find that this morning tremendously encouraging, because the reality is there are two things that we, re- we root effective evangelism in, and the first one is these things, that it's, it's just got to be a confident and well-put-together communication, Right? I just, I have to be persuasive like I actually believe it, not shaking in my boots like I'm unsure about everything in life, right? Uh, And then the second thing is, we just got to have a pat argument. Notice what he says next. He says, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. Okay? Now, I want to be clear here. Paul is not saying, I just communicated the gospel as I saw it and take it or leave it. Okay? If you read Paul's ministry, that guy believed in being persuasive. What he says here in plausible words of wisdom is not that he didn't try and make a case for Christianity. We see him doing that on many occasions. Okay? It's that he didn't rely upon those things as being ultimate. Okay? He didn't try and make a pat and unconvertible case for Christianity. In fact, isn't it interesting that most of the time that the people in Scripture talk about God, they're not giving like the teleological argument for God, right? They, they never go, well, here's how I know that these things happened. When the evidence is presented, a lot of times it's eyewitness testimony, um, but, but there's this sense where what's most important to them is not proving the gospel, but just stating it. Going back to Spurgeon, who I'll bring up at least one more time tonight. He said, I believe the truth is like a lion. And you don't need to defend a lion. You just let it out and it will defend itself. And like I said, that, the goal, though, is clarity. If there are things that stand in the way of you, even tonight where you say, I cannot believe in Christianity because of that, this, I would very much like to help you remove that rock. I would very much like to talk about it. But let me point out reality. 
that if it's my persuasive arguments, what are you going to do when someone more persuasive brings their arguments to the table? If your Christianity is built upon the foundation of my brain power and ability to communicate, what are you going to do when you meet a tremendously smart atheist? Because they exist, okay? This is, this is what Paul is trying to avoid. He says it's not about plausible words of wisdom, but instead, he says, demonstration of the spirit and of power, okay? Now, before, before we look at what that means, I want you to see his reason. What does he say at the end there in verse 5? Why? Why not in plausible words? That your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but the power of God. Okay? What he says here is, I avoided these false hopes so that your hope would be sound. I avoided these intermediary things you could believe in, like a good pastor or a good leader or a good teacher, so that your your foundation, so your faith would be rightly placed in God and not these other things. Okay, this is actually a really scary reality, okay? What Paul is saying here is, if what's attractive to you about Christianity is someone who's very good at presenting it, right? Or the, the eloquence or, or, I mean, let's just recognize in our celebrity culture that we just like to identify with people, Okay, and that's what was going on in Corinth. I follow Paul. Well, I'm with Apollos. Well, I stand for Cephas, right? For Peter, the apostle. They were identifying behind these men as if that's where their badge of honor, that's where their strength and justification was. That's what Paul says, no, no, no. We need to go back to the beginning, uproot all of that and begin again. Okay. But what does he mean here by the demonstration of the spirit and of power? What's the contrast? What, what is it that w- was different about his presentation? Just first, I want you to recognize tonight that when we think demonstration of the spirit of power, if we just take that phrase and we apply it to speaking, it contradicts everything we just read. The church about 100 years ago had a word for good preaching. They called unction. Okay? I don't actually know where it came from, and I've never heard it used in any other setting, but some preachers had the unction. Okay? And usually they spoke of it in these terms, that the power of the Spirit was present. But a lot of times, if you read what they mean by that, it means that the speaker was powerful in voice or emotionally, you know, these things, or, or convincing in their arguments. It falls down to these things, and Paul has already left all those things off the table. Now, it could mean miracles, right? We know that where Paul went... God showed up mightily and things happened. People got healed. And sometimes they weren't even from Paul's intention, right? He's, he uses a sweat rag at work. He leaves it on the bench and somebody steals it and takes it to his brother-in-law who's dying in bed and suddenly he's healed. These were realities of Paul's ministry, but I don't think that's what he's talking about here. Also, this demonstration of power, this reality here is not just something that happens in Corinth, okay? If we look at the church in Thessalonica, for example, in First and Second Thessalonians, in First Thessalonians in particular, <clears throat> he talks to the church and he says something very similar to what he's just said. Listen to it. This is in First Thessalonians chapter one, verse five. He says, "Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction." Okay, two terms we already saw: power and the Spirit. And he adds one here with full conviction. Okay. Now, on top of that, just because I don't want to turn back to this book and I want to point it out to you, later on in chapter 2, 
he says this in verse 13, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. Is that an incredible claim or what? Paul says the things you heard from us, you received, not as our words, but as they really are, God's word, okay? Now that and the spirit go hand in hand. couple of things. First off, I mentioned earlier that the Bible is authored by all of these people through all these cultures across all of this time, across all of these different circumstances. But it constantly maintains that behind it is a single capital A author, the Holy Spirit. Okay? And so Paul himself, writing to Timothy, says that all scripture is divinely inspired and breathed out by God. But if you read closer, specifically, that role is recognized in relationship with God, the Holy Spirit. Peter tells us that the prophets didn't write of any personal interpretation, their own thoughts. Here is my memoir. But instead, they wrote as they were moved along by the Holy Spirit. In the book of Acts in chapter 2 or maybe chapter 1, when one of the apostles is speaking, they quote David in the Psalms and they just say, the Holy Spirit says, Jesus himself In Revelation, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay? And so the power of the proclamation of the gospel is first, that it's focused on the person of Jesus Christ. Second, that when it's spoken, it's witnessed to, it's affirmed, it's confirmed by the Holy Spirit. And this is exactly what Jesus said the Spirit would do. He says, when the Spirit comes into the world, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. Isn't that good news? It means that you don't have to, right? You don't have to bring on everything you learned from your mother-in-law about guilt and just ply it on until they feel the weight of their sins, right? The Spirit does the heavy lifting in that. Our goal is clarity, not even convincing, or at the very least, I'd say not even coercing, okay? We're not to twist people's arms until they believe. We're not to trap their logic so that we can victorious, you know, so that they have to tap out, right, and say, fine, I believe. At its ultimate and fullest sense, we are to proclaim it, recognizing the power. So what is this demonstration of the Spirit that he's talking about? Clearly, it's changed lives, right? He says, you want to know the evidence of the power of my preaching? It's you, That's what he says in 2 Corinthians. He says, I don't need a letter of recommendation. You are my letter of recommendation. Okay? His point is that in these words, with fear and trembling, in these words, denying, you know, playing the games of culture with their understanding of what's wise or what plays by the rules or, let me poke the bear, what's scientific? All of those things have flaws, blind spots, And so instead, he wants to communicate in ways that they can understand. He wants to give it to them clearly, and he wants to remove all of those other things so that the Spirit can work. And once again, that is good news, okay? Now, I feel this good news every single week, okay? Because I'll be honest, every once in a while, one of you will come and share with me what the Lord's doing in your life through his word, and you'll thank me for it, which I greatly appreciate. And then I go away and I scratch my head, okay? Because it doesn't really make any sense to me. And the reality is my story is the exact same way. 
I can remember the day I was sitting in the church I got saved in just a few weeks in, and I had this epiphany that my pastor had a stutter. And I went, if he can do this and stutter, I can do this. And I know that I'm terribly unique, and I don't wish that any of you would become like me, but I want you to know that you can do this, okay? That the heavy lifting of how God changes lives is not in speaking ability and not in the ability of logic. In fact, here, here's the ultimate illustration I've been chewing on all week, and once again, it comes from Spurgeon. When he talks about sermon illustrations, this is the illustration he uses for illustrations. I love this. He says, the goal of an illustration is to let in the light. And he says, don't settle for a stained glass window when you can have a clear one that lets all the light in, right? He says, don't, don't just make an attractive or a funny illustration just for the sake of attractiveness or funny. But that applies to preaching as well. Your goal is clarity. And it can be shaking clarity. And it can be clarity and weakness. Okay? But the word of God is living and powerful. Because it's spoken not just by you, but by the spirit of God. That's why Jesus could say, if anyone does not receive you, he does not receive me. And if anyone does not receive me, he does not receive he who sent me. That's why he could say to the church in Thessalonica, you received our words as they are the word of God. In fact, here's what he says to the church in Ephesus, which I want you to remember is hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem. He says, you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him. How can he say that to the church in Ephesus? How can he say that Jesus has spoken to them? Because he has. He's spoken in the proclamation of the gospel. He's spoken in the proclamation of who Jesus is. He's spoken in the testimony of God. That's why, as a side note, the author of Hebrews, Hebrews, by the way, doesn't seem to be a letter traditionally. It feels more like a sermon, a sermon that was then turned into a letter. It has an introduction and a conclusion and points along the way. That's how it feels. That's why the author of Hebrews can quote from the Old Testament and say, the Spirit says, today, if you will hear his voice, is the day of salvation. Today, the Spirit says today, present tense. His audience, he's writing to, he says, God is speaking to you. That was the reality that not only did Paul recognize and build his ministry upon, but it's also the one that he didn't want to put anything in the way of. Okay? He wanted to be clear and he also wanted to be completely clear of being in the way. Warren Wiersbe has this great little story. I don't know if it's true. Uh, but he talks about a little girl that he had known once. And they were attending a church together, I believe. And um, <laughs> there was a beautiful stained glass picture of Jesus on the cross. Um, right, what would be right here. And one day he wasn't there. And, and the girl turned to her mother and said, Mommy, where's, where's the guy who stands so we can't see Jesus? And like I said, it's, it's silly, it's a little bit trite, and it's very allegorical. But that is Paul's greatest fear. Okay? In fact, you want to know why I think he's in weakness and fear and trembling? I think some of it is the weight of the responsibility he feels to do this well. Okay? Why was he struggling so hard in Corinth? I imagine it's probably because he's starting to question is this what I'm supposed to be doing? You know, is, is, this, is this it, you know? 
but the demonstration of the spirit of power. Why? So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Listen. Messengers are human beings, and they will let you down. Okay? They will get their facts wrong. They won't have up-to-date arguments. Uh, They will sometimes trip over their own words. But the sooner you learn that and yet still recognize that God uses his word, that your lives have changed, that you're not who you once were, and it's because of these things, then, then you're in a place where you can rightly assess how preaching works and how to pick a good preacher. Okay, I... Let me spoil the plot. As we move forward, you can't really pick a good preacher anyway. That's what Paul's going to come to the conclusion. He says, there's no difference between me and Apollos. I, I laid down the seed. I planted. Apollos, he watered, but it was God who gave the increase. Okay? As much as you can know about farming, you still can't make the seeds grow. You can get rid of a lot of things that will stop seeds from growing, like don't plant it in your cupboard, right? Uh, but when it comes down to it, and I know some of you have been corrupted because you've seen Totoro. You remember the scene where they make the trees grow like this? Go ahead, try it. Try it any day of the week. It's not going to work. Paul picks that metaphor for a reason because wherever it is that the, the miracle of growth happens, it's not in the farmer and it's not in the soil. And all of those things can be a hindrance, but they will never be the essential ingredient. Okay? And so once again, this is good news for you because what it looks like for you to be a faithful Christian witness is not, you know, a, a member of the Christian intelligentsia. It's, it's not that you have to master every argument or, or that you need to go to Toastmasters or that you have to overcome your stutter. It's none of those things. It's just clarity. It's just sharing the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And like I said, there is a need in clarity for contextualization. There is a need to recognize, you know what, they're only going to hear one side of this, right? There's a need to be thoughtful and not just exegete what the Bible says about Jesus, but exegete where your culture's at. Relevancy means knowing the questions they're asking and answering them in Jesus Christ, okay? Not what type of musician, you know, you put on stage or how they do their hair or what kind of jeans I wear, okay? It's about clarity. And those questions are important, but ultimately, those are about removing hindrances so that God can do the work, okay? Let's pray. Tonight, I want to pray very specifically. I want to pray that our paradigm for where wisdom and truth is found would be reshaped into this paradigm, that it's found in the person of Jesus Christ and the testimony of God, that it's found not in the best argument or the most persuasive uh, or the most articulate, but in a clear presentation of Scripture. Yes, there are Spurgeons who wrote their sermons out on Saturday night in a single go and then read it, and it's one of the best things ever written. Yes, those people exist. But you know who Spurgeon's hero was? D.L. Moody. And D.L. Moody did not have a full and formal education. 
And despite that, he is estimated in his century to be seen by more people in the American continent than any other person. Do you know how many people came to D.L. Moody's evangelistic crusades because they had heard of his, you know, seedy redneck reality and the way he spoke and they just wanted to laugh at him? And we have constant stories of those same people showing up and encountering the power of God and changing forever. One last thing about Spurgeon. He said this. He said, I can always tell my converts because they don't stay converts for very long. If I understand that quote right, what he's saying is basically, you know what? I might be in the dangerous position and not moody. I might have a more tendency to lean on my cleverness and lean on my ability. The danger for us is not that we don't have what it takes but that we would foolishly put the weight of the power of God on our shoulders and think that we do, or because we don't, all is lost. And so what I want to pray tonight, like I said, is that particularly we readdress that paradigm, that we would recognize that the word of God goes forth and does not return void, does just what it accomplishes, like it says in the book of Isaiah, that we would recognize that when we speak, we speak with the Spirit's help and that he changes hearts, that he convicts the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment, that he adds the second testimony that says, yes, this is true. And because of that, we would have one of my favorite words in the New Testament. It's often translated boldly, boldly, but it means freedom of speech. When you read the end of the book of Acts and it says that he was living in a house under house arrest and he spoke boldly, that's the word, freedom of speech. It means unhindered unhindered. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I pray that we would not just have in our regiment of heroes and examples the eloquent Pauls, but the unlearned Peters, that we wouldn't just rely on the, the powerful Apollos but we'd remember the Samaritan woman who came barely knowing who Jesus was to the men of her town and said, could this be the Messiah? And the whole town experienced revival. I pray, Lord, that we would understand the power of preaching, that it's rooted in the fact that the message we share is life because it's about Jesus who is life and resurrection, and that we would recognize that the power of what we share is not in persuasive words, not <coughs> in eloquence or wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit, that the Spirit is moving. We may not see the Spirit. We may not see um, where he comes from or where he goes. He's just like the wind, but we can see the effects of the Spirit. We've seen it in our own lives. Many of us feel like that blind man in the Gospel of John who can say, this, this is the one thing I know. I was blind and now I see. And I, say, I pray that we would operate in that same faith as we proclaim, as we share, as we present the truth of who you are and the power of the Spirit. <coughs> Father, we just want to surrender ourselves tonight and recognize that 
the I can'ts that we often use as excuses in our relationships, the things that keep us from sharing, the you know, need to go back and study further or, or you know, not fully understanding the culture that ultimately, Lord, you go with us. You go before us. Your spirit is moving. Your word is speaking. Your message is there. Jesus is calling. We're just the messengers. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.